Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Daniel chapter 1, would you please open up your Bibles? We're beginning a new series in the book of Daniel. And Daniel, and actually we're beginning a new series in the book of Daniel and Revelation. And so here's kind of a format or a a visual for where we're going to be headed throughout this next year. We're going to be talking about Daniel. We're going to be looking at the first part of Revelation, talking about these um, these letters to the seven churches. And then we're going to talk about the king and his kingdom and how his kingdom is consummated. And so we have a fun year ahead of us. And pray for us as we continue to study and prepare and be faithful to the text. Um, as we go into this. When I was a kid, um, one of the things that my family and I would sometimes do is we would play chess. Um, Chess is one of those games that requires not just a knowledge of what the next move is. If you're going to be a really good chess player, you're going to know it's going to be several moves down the line. If I do this, what are they going to do? And you're always thinking, good chess players are always thinking multiple moves in advance probably the reason why I'm not a good chess player. But they, they had this big board, my parents did, and it was made out of wood. And then the, the little, the, the pieces were actually pretty big because they, they had this, um, this chess board from when they were in Africa. They lived in Africa for a while. And so there's these iron things that are hammered out and all this kind of stuff. And we would play chess and it was always a good time. When we look at the world, It can be mind-boggling to understand how all the various pieces of life come together. You know, you look at what's happening in the United States. You look at what's happening in Europe or in Canada or Mexico or in Africa or in Asia. And you go, how does all this fit together? And sometimes it can become like an obsession. Maybe, Maybe it becomes too much of an obsession for us. But when we look at the book of Daniel... We look at something that is going on, and it's filled with a combination of story and a combination of prophecy, but the center of it all is God. Daniel's going to be given a revelation. Daniel's work is going to account for for things that happened throughout his 80-plus year life. But we have to keep two things in tension when we look at the books of Daniel and Revelation. Here's what they are. Number one, God is sovereign. God is always sovereign. His kingdom will be established and it will be consummated. It will. There's no if and or but. It will. But with that, we also have to recognize that God allows people to make choices. And so we see in here real human stories of people making choices. The point is this, God did not make us to be robots, but he does work powerfully in our lives. And sometimes he even allows really difficult things to occur for his glory and our good. The conflict of Daniel and Revelation involves God bringing consequences and hope to a disobedient people. That's why they got into Babylon. However, there's a greater conflict going on that Daniel and Revelation address. And this is the war between good and evil, between the Lord and the adversary. 
What scripture reveals is that God is not absent from this battle. Rather, even when it seems like evil is winning, God is firmly in control. We don't have to fear tomorrow because we know who holds tomorrow. Amen? So when we approach this, it's important for us to remember this truth. Now, Daniel is written... Here's kind of two of the main purposes of the book of Daniel. One is, is it's written to be a hope in God for the people during the times of the Gentiles, all right? He's writing to encourage people because the people of Israel have been taken off into captivity and they're going, we're in captivity. God, what about your promises? But another purpose of the book is that, remember, no matter what happens, God rules and reigns as king. In fact, the word king is used 183 times in the book of Daniel. And the word kingdom is used 55 times in the book of Daniel. Um, Before we jump into the text, I want to give you kind of just, just a brief picture so you can kind of see how it all fits together. Here's a structure. This is taken from the Moody Bible Commentary. Really helpful resource um, for study. They break down Daniel into this way, kind of into, into, it's in three parts or two parts, depending on what you're looking at. If you're looking at what they're talking about, you can break it up into history from chapter one to the end of chapter six. And and you can kind of even go into chapter seven a little bit with the story that's there. And then it picks up. So it goes from history to prophecy. Now, there's some prophetic stuff in the first couple chapters. There's also some story stuff in the last couple chapters. So this is just a broad kind of way to to plant it. What's interesting about the book of Daniel is it's actually written in two different languages. In chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, it's written in Hebrew. Then Daniel switches to the language of Aramaic, which is the common language of the day. And then in chapter 8, he switches back to Hebrew. So it's kind of a, it's a multilingual book. Uh, scholars talk about why um, Aramaic is this kind of common language of the day. And so the way they break this up is the first section that's in Hebrew is, the, is talking about the godly person in the time of the Gentiles. In other words, what does it mean to be godly in the midst of an ungodly world? The second part is God's sovereignty over the times of the Gentiles. More stories of how God preserves his people even when it, thing, it seems like things are kind of falling off the rails. And then it switches back to Hebrew, and, and it talks about God's people Israel in the time of the Gentiles. And here's where we get a bunch of prophecy, and, and how does Israel fit into this, into what God wants to do and will do throughout the rest of human history. And so it's at that point where Daniel and Revelation really begin to intersect, and we will get there in due time. Um, um, the, the, the story of Daniel begins um, with this phrase. Look with me, please, at Daniel chapter 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he laid siege to it. All right? We have a context here, and it's in the year of King Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar comes and he lays siege. There's three conquests of the people of Israel, or of the people of Judah, I should be more specific. Um, The people of Israel, uh, let me back up, let me give you this. So you have the kingdom, right, under David, and then you have the kingdom under Solomon, and it gets even bigger. After Solomon, you have Rehoboam, and there's a splitting of kingdoms. With Rehoboam, 
it splits into the northern tribes, the, the northern tribes, which is called Israel at this point, and the, and the southern tribes, which are called Judah at this point. In um, 722, sorry, a little bit of history lesson, but I want you to understand where we got or how we got here. In 722, because of their disobedience, the northern tribes of Israel were taken away to captivity by Assyria. All right. A couple other, you know, 150, 170 years later, we finally have Judah now who... Okay, so Israel didn't really have any good kings and they kind of left God a whole lot quicker. Judah stayed a little bit closer to God. They had some good kings. They had some bad kings. And in 586, Judah is finally carried off. The reason this matters is when Daniel's story starts, it starts before the complete total takeover of Nebuchadnezzar taking all the people over to Babylon. There's actually three different conquests that take place. The first one happens in 605. In 605, Nebuchadnezzar is out doing conquests. His, his father dies and he actually goes back to Babylon to be essentially coronated as king. And as part of that, he's in the Jerusalem area and he, he's already conquered to some extent. And he takes some people and some things from Jerusalem, from, from Judah here, including Daniel. When Daniel leaves the land, it's around 605 BCE. The second conquest is this first siege of Jerusalem in 597. They're coming back around, they're fighting another war, and here we go. And then finally, Jerusalem has fallen, the temple is burned, and the people are in full-on exile. Not that everyone goes into exile, but exiles happen to the people of Israel. And the people of Judah, finally in 586. And the reason they got here is because they decided not to follow what God said. They, they, they put their relationship with God as a distant second, third, fourth, fifth, and they'd pursued all this other stuff instead of God. And God warned them of this in Deuteronomy. He says, look, if you do this, here's what's going to happen. And God doesn't exile his people just to punish them. He actually exiles his people to preserve them. He, he, he brings them out of the land to awaken their senses to how far they had come. But he also is a covenant promise keeper. So he exiles them to the land, but during this, or he exiles them from the land over to Babylon. And during this time, he preserves them. Now he takes them to a place called Babylon. And Babylon, um, your, your text may say, I have the HCSB. It, it, it says Babylon in verse two. Um, some translations say, say Shinar. That's probably a better translation. Shinar is a place. Let me see if I've got the photo. Here we go. Shinar is a place um, not very, very close to Jerusalem. It, it's, it's back in some of the early, it's modern day Iraq, basically, where it's at. And the way you'd get there is you'd go from Jerusalem in the bottom left-hand part of your screen, and you'd follow the water. You, you'd think maybe going across, you know, the, the straightest way to get there is, is in a straight line. Not if, there's any, not if there's not any water. So the way you would travel there, the way that Abraham traveled from the land of Ur, which is up in kind of the northeast section, is... You go from Jerusalem, you go up, you follow the river, you follow the water, and then you come down so that you can get to where you need to go. It's not a short journey. But Babylon is a place that is um, the, the seat of academia in the known world. It's a very cosmopolitan city. There's a lot of power here because its kings are basically demolishing everything. They're taking everything under their control. 
Um, one of the, the areas, this is a model from the Berlin Museum. Uh, this is a model of the Ishtar Gate. So you have this, um, you have this kind of promenade here where you walk down uh, a, a, a corridor, and then you come to this beautiful blue gate that you find in the upper right-hand part of your screen. That was one of the top wonders of the world back in its time. It's actually, it's amazingly beautiful. They have a recreation of it at the Berlin Museum and they've taken some of the original bricks and they've put it over there. And so just imagine your Daniel and your, some of his friends, you've just traveled uh, a long time, you know, about a thousand miles or so. And you've come from Jerusalem over to Babylon and you're walking into the city and you're walking through the city and you come to this, you go through this beautiful blue Ishtar gate and it's, and it's just like power and prominence and you're just overwhelmed by, wow, this is incredible. Just to kind of get some other visuals, here's a model of Babylon. You'll notice that there's all these houses, but, but you'll notice that there's a big, big building over on the top right-hand part of your screen. I'll show you a different one. This is called a ziggurat, okay? A ziggurat is a is essentially a terraced compound. It goes up, up into the heavens. And at the top of this compound, there is a temple for the gods to live in. Uh, you can see it here in the blue at the very top of your screen. You, you can see there's all these steps, which you would go up um, to, the, the priest would go up of that time, would go up to offer the sacrifices or whatever, worship to the gods. And they believed that the gods lived in this room or this house up at the top of the ziggurat. Um, and it was blue in ancient times because as you would look up at the sky, it would kind of blend in with the blue of the sky. And they thought that the gods, th this was a place where heaven met earth, basically. So it was the center of the ancient um, city here. Um, one of the places, I didn't show it to you here, but in the top hand part of your screen, um, the, zigg the ziggurat's not the only temple. The other temple is in the top hand part of your screen. You see that big long building. That's, that's the temple to a god by the name of Marduk. And so just imagine um, Nebuchadnezzar is taking Daniel and he's taking these, these young men into the city and they're surrounded by academic prestige. They're surrounded by fortune tellers and diviners and dream people and all of these things that they're going to learn. They're surrounded by a new language and a new culture and certain foods. And at the center of all this is worship, but not the kind of worship they're accustomed to. The question in the ancient period was not, is there a God? That wasn't the question in the ancient period. The question was, which God do you serve? Which God do you serve? Atheism was not a prominent thing at this point. Everyone believed in gods. The question is, which God do you serve? And that's the question that's going to set the baseline for what Daniel and his friends experience in the first chapter and even through the rest of the book. So with that little bit of long introduction. Would you stand with me for the reading of the scripture? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon and to the house of his God, and he put the vessels in the treasury of his God. 
the king ordered Ashpenaz, the, king of his court, the chief of his court officials, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace, and to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The, the king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to serve in the king's court. Among them, from the descendants of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief officials gave them other names. He gave them the names Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief official not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel favor and compassion from the chief official. Yet he said to Daniel, My lord, the king assigned your food and drink. I'm afraid of what would happen if he saw your faces looking thinner than those of the other young men your age. You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based upon what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and he gave them vegetables. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. And at the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to serve in the king's court in every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about. He found them ten times better than all the diviner priests and mediums in his entire kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Father, would you give us wisdom and insight to your word that we may go live and walk in a way that would bring you glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. So, the point is this. When Daniel and his friends show up on the scene, they're probably about 15 years old. 15 years old. Anybody close to the age of 15, give or take a couple years. All right, we've got a couple of you. Imagine you're 15 years old. You've left your home. You've left your family. You've left your friends. You're in a whole new culture, and you're asked the question, what will I become? What will guide the choices that I make today? This is a very important question. When you don't have people around you to tell you or to encourage you in what you should do, will you become part of the culture or will you stand out because of your honor and love for the Lord? What values will drive who you are? See, what the king wanted to do, this is my nice snow block mold that we have for making like snow block mold things um, in our house. Um, what the king wanted to do is he wanted to take these people in. He wanted to take the best of the best. Daniel and his friends are likely from a royal line or a priestly line. 
They're already well-educated. They're very um, easy to engage. They're, they're thoughtful. They have aptitude for learning how to respond in a court setting. He wants to take them and he wants to press them into a mold. Now, what he's offering them here, notice this, please. He, he says, you know, this is who I want to bring. Young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable, knowledgeable, capable, perceptive, all these kind of things. What he wants to do is he wants to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. He wants them to not just learn another language. He wants to begin the process of turning them into a Babylonian. He wants to press them into the new mold of what he wants them to become. Because he, he doesn't just want their aptitude and their ability. He wants that to be harnessed for his kingdom. Now, it's interesting because he, he's conquered their kingdom in, in, in all like brute force um, examples. You could say he's already won them. He may have won their appearance in Babylon, but what the king is concerned about is not just whether or not they're in Jerusalem or Babylon, but whether or not they live as though they're in Babylon versus being in Jerusalem. He wants to press them into this mold. Because like I said, the center of Babylon is a ziggurat with a temple on top. This temple is not built to Yahweh. It's, it's actually interesting because um, Babylon, like I said earlier, it's also the place of Shinar. Shinar, Shinar, you might say. Uh, Shinar is a place that we have read about in our going through the Bible. Those of you who are joining us and reading through the Bible this year, we read about this just a couple weeks ago in Genesis chapter 10. There's this place that's built, a big temple reaching up to the sky. There, God confuses their language. Shinar in the Bible is not only a place, but it comes to represent the center of evil and human pride. We'll see this in Nebuchadnezzar's life, and I think it's chapter 4, when he looks out over his kingdom, he says, look at all the things I have made. He wants to press them into this mold where at the center of their life is the worship of the God of Babylon and their service to its king. The question is not for them, how do I get out of Babylon? Because notice it says in verse 2, the Lord handed them over. They're not here because an oppressor came. They're here because God allowed it. God gave it o them over, which means that God is still in control, that even if Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's powerful, he can't touch God. Worship was a big deal. And as they gathered around this ziggurat, and as they sought to press the culture into the mold of their culture, While the Lord gave them there, God's given them an opportunity to be a light amidst an ungodly world. In verses um, three and following, we see this kind of cultural brainwashing going on, if you will. You have them there. They're there to teach the Chaldean language and literature. But in verse five, it says, the king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. 
and that they were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to serve in the king's court. Three years, so roughly about a thousand days, they're going to be in this training program. This college, this seminary, this, th- this place where they would go, seminary is probably not the right word for there, but this college, this, this, this is like the Harvard, the Yale, the Cambridge of the ancient world. And they're there to learn, but they're there to serve. And as they begin to serve, the king gives them food. He says, here, let me put the best of everything in front of you. Um, this is not, one of the things I love about food is whenever you travel, you try the food and you get to know the people. So th- this food is the best of the best. He- here are people who were exiled from their place, an arduous journey. You can imagine they sit down to eat and they go, oh man, that looks good. Oh, I haven't had that in whatever. But there's a difference about this kind of food. There- there's probably two issues going on here. One has an issue having to do with kosher rules. Daniel and his family had grown up. We, we, we get the sense from this, this letter or this, this book. We get the sense that he grows up very observant to the, to the rules of God. Not, not, not to earn his place with God, but because he has a genuine relationship with God. We, we find these prayers that Daniel prays and, and he has a great dependence upon God. And one of the things God had told the Jewish people was, don't eat this, don't eat this, don't eat this. Like pork and shellfish and all these kind of things. And so Daniel is faced with, if that's the food that's on the table, am I going to eat that and go against what God had told my people? Will I become Babylonian or will I stay Jewish? Um, Not only that, there's probably a lot of food that he's going to be presented, which was offered to the gods. And if it was offered up in worship or in service of the gods, ooh, how can I eat something that's been given to another god in worship and in service and all this kind of stuff? And how can I drink that when I'm a Jew? Daniel's faced and his friends are faced with these kind of practical questions and struggles. Not only does it have to do with food, uh, the king wants to change his identity. Notice, please, in verse 6 and following, actually verse, um, where is it? It's the name change part, which is in verse 7. Yes, verse 7. Verse 6 and verse 7. Their, their names, their Jewish names are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The name Daniel means God is my judge. All right? When you see the word El in Hebrew, that's one of the names for God. All right? God is my judge. They want to change, and they do change Daniel's name to Belteshazzar, which means the secret of their God, Bel. Hananiah's name. And whenever you see that, that Yah on the end there, that I-A-H, that typically refers to, um, they're inserting part of the name of Yahweh into their name, right? It means the Lord has been gracious. It comes from two words, like Hanan and Yah. They change his name to Shadrach, the inspiration of the sun god. How'd you like that? I'm the inspiration of the sun god. Yeah. We have the name, Mishael. Which means the one who comes from God. His name is changed to Meshach, which means he who belongs to the goddess Shishak. That's <laughs> a, a rhyme. It's kind of funny. Um, and then you have Azariah, which means the Yah, the Yah there, uh, the I-H, the Lord. 
Azar, Azar is the word help in Hebrew. It means the Lord is my helper. His name is changed from that to Abednego, servant of Nebo, the morning star. What's central in just their names are which God do you serve, right? Their former names, their Jewish names, have this name or this reference to God, the covenant God in them. The names that they're changing them to have references to other gods in them. It's not just a food. It's not just a place. They want to completely take and shape and remold them into being Babylonian in every way, shape, and form. Notice in verse 8, we, so we have like this first seven verses just kind of giving a context here. And then in verse 8, we have a response to this context. It says, Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Right? Daniel feels this pressure. He, he knows the way he was raised. He, he knows what God's word says. And he's faced with at what point have I become more like the culture and not like my creator? It says he took to heart. You, you, could, you, you could translate this word determined as took to heart. You could say placed upon his heart. You could say he regarded or he paid attention to. Notice this comes first in the progression. The, the, the first moment that we're told directly about Daniel, except for the fact that he's, you know, who he was, we're told what he does. It says that he determined in his heart that he wouldn't eat. He's 15 years old. And the first thing he does is he says, God, I, I'm, I'm not going to eat that. He hasn't gone and had a conversation, which he will do. He hasn't said no, which he basically will do. The first thing he does is he says, God, I know what your word says. I'm going to walk in that. Not just because it's the right thing to do, but because of his walk with God. He took this upon his heart. He knew what he couldn't do as an observant Jewish lad, and he knew why. He knew the God whom he served. And so what he does is he goes to the, the chief official. This is, verse, this is the second part of verse 8. He goes to the chief official, and he asks the chief official, for permission not to defile himself. Now, I find this fascinating because he's already determined what he's not going to do. And after he does that, he goes and he tells the people responsible for him, would it be okay if I didn't defile myself? Why would he respond this way? Well, I, I love the progression because I think his heart and his mind are set. But then the secondary question is, how do I deal with people who are not me? <laughs> He goes over to them and, and it says that God grants him favor and compassion with the chief official. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff he could have done. He, he's in a context where, as the story says, um, the king had prescribed this. Like, you don't have an excuse, Daniel. You have to do it because the king said. You could be punished, Daniel, if you don't do what the king said. The people he's going to talk to, they make the argument, look, the king said this. If I don't follow through on what the king said, look at what's going to happen to me. The king won't be very happy with me. Daniel could have been thinking about, look, if I buck the system here, will it spoil my chances of being the top of my class? 
Will it spoil the possibility that maybe I won't get the seat as the, the most important advisor to the king from the land of Judah? Not only that, the food may have looked really, really good. There's all these different things that Daniel could have said, um, I can just do it. It's okay. But he determines in his heart, he places upon his heart the truth of God and the truth of God's word, and he chooses to live out of that instead of living out of his flesh. And he trusts the rest to the Lord. He goes to this chief official, and God grants him favor and compassion. The, the, the God who took him there granted him favor and compassion. And he begins in this conversation with the, the man there, and in verse 11, it says, so Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had assigned to Daniel. So the, the chief official is a little apprehensive about this. Daniel goes to the guard who's kind of more directly in response and notice what he says. He doesn't go in hot. He, he doesn't go say, you have to do this. Don't you know? He says to him, please test your servants for 10 days. He gives him an option. Hey, look, test me. Test us for 10 days. If we don't look as good as the rest of them, but if we do, can we continue? He says, examine our appearance in verse 13 and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food. Deal with your servants based upon what you see. What Daniel's operating out of here is faith. He's operating out of faith. He, he doesn't know how it's going to completely turn out. But he trusts the God who had led him here. He trusts the God who has kept him. He trusts the God whom he's built this relationship with over the 15 or so years of his life. And he says, look, there's a lot of different ways I could go my own way, but God, I trust you. This isn't unlike an 18-year-old going to a college a thousand miles away from mom and dad, church, faith, community, and being asked these questions. How will I respond in this culture? Will I follow the pressing of the world into its cube? Or will I walk as the person who God made and designed me to be in keeping with the revelation of God? Ultimately, it's not what we do or don't do that guides our choices. Now, what we do and what we don't do is very important. But there's a step that happens before this, and it's the why. It's the why. Why do I do what I do? Why do I not do what I don't do? And for Daniel, it's this trust and relationship with Yahweh that even in the midst of being exiled, he's saying, God, I trust you. I trust that you've placed me here and I'm going to seek to live in accordance with your command and your teaching because I know that's what honors you and not the gods of this world, lowercase g. Daniel's life is formed by conviction. It's formed by a prayerfulness. He understands God's heart because he has this relationship with God. What drives him to do or not do things is that he has a right identity of who he is before God. Daniel's life models worship. It, it seems that for Daniel, the decision was already made because he knew whom he served. 
It wasn't the question of, oh, which God am I going to serve every single day? He determines, no, I'm going to serve Yahweh. Now, what does it mean to walk that out? With kindness, with humility. He engages the people who are responsible for him. But at the center of this, at the why of this, is that Daniel desired God more than anything else. And any subtle attempts to change his course would be unsuccessful. For Daniel, his actions flowed from his values. It's not just asking for a different meal that he does. It's how he asks for one. It's how he interacts with the people whom God made, but who are far from him right before him. That makes sense. He asks them, may I not defile myself? God gives him favor, compassion. Daniel is still determined, but while he's determined, he remains cordial while engaging the king's men who are subject to the king. Daniel seems to care about them, not just himself. Daniel seems to walk in a certain confidence that comes only from humility before God. And he treats others in the same way. Sometimes, friends, incredible boldness is necessary in needing to stand up against injustice. But Daniel practices another very good biblical trait here, honoring people who are made in the image of God as people made in the image of God. They may not be his children through faith, but they're people that are stamped with God's image on them. In other words, he treats humans like humans. He engages them as people. This is a hard thing to do, especially when you have different priorities and different values in different circumstances. But for, for Daniel, his success is tied directly to faithfulness. It's not tied to what the end product looks like. It's tied to God, what have you called me to do? God, help me to walk in that. Faithfulness, faithfulness, faithfulness before God. Daniel honors them by proposing this solution to test them regard, with regard to his diet. And just as a small note, uh, when I was a kid, I remember this new like, diet fad coming out called the Daniel diet. Anybody remember the Daniel diet or the Daniel fast? Okay, a couple of you maybe do. It was like this, eat like Daniel or whatever. Notice what happens when you eat like Daniel. At the end of the days, at the end of the 10 days, verse 15 says, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. Now, in, uh, that's, a, that's an English translation. And uh, the literal Hebrew here, instead of healthier, uh, is they looked fatter of flesh. How many of you have that in your Bible? Yeah, if you have an ESV, you have that. They did a really good job with that translation. Literally in Hebrew, it means he looked fatter of flesh. So he's eating vegetables, he's drinking water, and he goes and stands before the king's people. And he goes eventually and stands before the king. And the king goes, nice job. You didn't lose the weight. You actually put it on. <laughs> you know, he looks healthy. He looks full of face. The point of my point with that is the Daniel fast is not... It's not about eating like Daniel. <laughs> it's not about losing weight. God is doing something in him. God is being faithful to his promise. Where, where the king would have thought the best way to fatten these boys up and put some muscle and stuff on them is to give them the best of the best food. Daniel and his friends don't do that because they want to honor God and not defile themselves with the food. And so God gives them an even better complexion and appearance before the king. They're more fatter of flesh than the other ones. And God honors their faithfulness. 
And it says in verse 16, so the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were given to drink and he gave them vegetables for three years. Vegetables. Now I grew up a vegetarian, so that's not crazy to me, but uh, in West Michigan culture here, if you were to give up meat for three years, some of you, by the end of that three years, it'd be a challenge, I would imagine, because we like our meat in this area, and I do too now, because I'm no, no longer vegetarian. Um, so in verse 17, it says this, God gave these four young men knowledge, understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Now here they are, they're in the seat of knowledge, understanding, literature, and wisdom. They're at the place of the place. And what they look like compared to everyone else around them is the cream of the crop. Now, I think they had involvement in that. I think they worked hard. I think they studied. I think, I think they sought to appropriate the language and, and to rightly appropriate the culture. But they didn't do it apart from a work of God in them. Because God gave these young men this. He honored their faithfulness. He honored their moments of trusting. And he puts them in a position of power and authority and wisdom that will not just affect them now, it will actually impact them for generations to come. He gives them this. And at the end of the time, so at the end of the three years, the king had said to present them, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar, right? The, the big guy in all of the region. This is the one to whom you go before and your knees are knocking. The king interviewed them and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to serve in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding, the king consulted them about. He found them ten times, or ten hands, you, you could, or, or hands above, you know, leagues better, basically, than all the other diviner priests and mediums in his entire kingdom. God, God rewards faithfulness. He does. He rewards faithfulness. I'll say it again. The point is not the end product. God knows the end product. The point is, are we faithful in what God has given us to do here and now? Are, are we trusting God? Are we allowing ourselves to be pressed into the mold that society and culture wants to press us into? Or do we live out of the person who God has recreated us to be? Romans chapter 12, I've quoted it to you before. It says, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed by the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. What God wants to do in us as a people is he wants to repattern our minds he wants to transform our minds to, to look at the situations that are placed before us and say, all right, is this God honoring? And to respond, not out of legalism, but to respond out of our relationship with God and say, you know, as, as a follower of Jesus, I, I, I can't do that. Not in an arrogant way, in a humble way that says, no, because... That was a good catch. Whew, that's on tape too. Bummer. Not in an arrogant way, but in a way that says, you know what? I don't serve the kingdoms of this world. I've been placed here 
God has you here intentionally with purpose. But he's placed you here. And the question is, is whose God are you going to serve? Or which God are you going to serve? Not whose God. Which God are you going to serve? Notice verse 21 briefly. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. We'll talk about Cyrus in coming weeks. But I want you to know that that statement basically says until he's in his 80s. So he starts at 15 in the palaces of Babylon. And he goes to the 80s. He goes through a couple of different kings. Worship team, you guys can come on up. He goes through several different kings. And what is marked by Daniel's life is his love for God and his faithfulness to walk in his ways. What marks your life today? Is it driven by the forms and the patterns and the practices of this world? Or is it marked by, God, I want to be faithful to what you've called me to in a desire to walk out of God or walk with God out of his heart and out of his spirit and out of his ways for your life. Reminds me of a passage that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. He's talking about worry, but he comes to the end of this worry and he says this. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. This is not a prosperity gospel, by the way. You go and you read Hebrews 11, which I was reading this week. You find out the people who are faithful to God often did, not, often did not experience the best things of this world, at least the way that we would look at them. Some of them were sawed in half. Some of them lost their life to lions. Some of them were, you just go down the list. Some of them were crucified. But they were found faithful to what God had called them. As one of my mentors used to say, faithfulness is never failure. It's never failure. In fact, it's exactly what God is looking for, for people who are living in an ungodly world. Father, would you seal within our hearts and our minds wisdom from your spirit, God, about how you want us to be faithful to your word today. God, how you want us to walk in relationship with you today, not to earn anything. God, we cannot earn a relationship with you. That is a gift that comes through your son's sacrifice by dying and, raising, and being raised from the, from the grave. But God, we want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received as your children. God, help us to do that today. Give us clarity. Give us wisdom as we seek to determine our steps to that end. We don't know where that will take us, God, which is why we need you. You've been so good, Father. Be glorified in us. Even now as we sing for a few more minutes and we proclaim your glory, we proclaim your goodness over our lives, God, remind us that you are sufficient for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.